it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's uh, just wonderful to see turnout like this uh, when we announce right up front what we're going to be gathering and talking about. That it's uh, not going to be a lot of bells and whistles or excitement, but that this kind of uh, uh, congregation gathered to give holy attention to the divine perfections is really inspiring. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm going to speak today on God's own blessedness, and the key text is... Um, 1 Timothy 1.11, though I have to steal the last two words from 1.10. It's always a little awkward to try to indicate that. But Paul's in the middle of a sentence. You sort of have to interrupt him. Um, but he talks about sound doctrine, and then 1 Timothy 1.11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. We're going to talk about the blessedness of God. Uh, Paul talks here about the blessed God. I just want to indicate the seriousness of this passage, Paul's talking about the sound doctrine with which he's been entrusted, the apostolic message of salvation, and he says it's, it's governed by something, it's in accordance with something. You can, you can tell the sound doctrine is sound if it aligns with, and what it needs to align with is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. There's just, there's something in every single word there, right? So I, I just want to read that up front and then let you know that we'll be sneaking up on the meaning of calling God blessed. Now, um, whenever I get to guest speak or preach in another church, I always look around for available resources uh, that I can cite to tell people, look, I didn't bring this in with me. This is in your own text, not just the Bible that we share, but if I'm speaking in an Anglican church on the Trinity or something, I'll say, check it out. It's right here in the 39 articles. You know, wherever I am, I like to avail myself of local resources. So I do want to point you directly to the Westminster Confession, chapter 2. Let me just give you this language. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness. There's my key word. Here's the setting of that. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone foundation of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. All right, so the blessedness of God, in particular God's own blessedness. I use that phrase God's own blessedness because the overall biblical theology of blessedness is is really vast and covers lots of blessings for humans. In fact, we tend to use the word bless a lot, in the context of God blessing us or us blessing God. In fact, one of the best sentences in all of Holy Scripture. Can I say that? Or you're allowed to have favorite sentences in Scripture, right? You're not allowed to have least favorite sentences. That would be uh, at least rude and, and probably troublesome. One of the best sentences in all of Holy Scripture says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And then it goes on from there. It's Ephesians 1.3. And when Paul says, blessed be God who has blessed us, you can hear what he's doing there. He's using the same word twice in in English as in Greek. Blessed be God who has blessed us. Uh, Both forms of the Greek word eulogia, uh, to speak well of, eulogia, to bless. But as soon as you say it, you have to wonder how this can be. Surely the same word can't mean the same thing as it points in these two directions, from us to God and then from God to us. What I mean is, surely God blesses us altogether differently than how we bless God, right? 
When God blesses us, after all, he takes the absolute initiative, doing the kind of mighty acts that Paul goes on to recite in the next dozen verses of Ephesians 1. Electing, redeeming, forgiving, adopting, sealing, lavishing grace on us. That is how God blesses us. That's what Ephesians 1 is, blessing God for having done. But notice the direction there of the Almighty God blessing us in those all-determining ways. But then when we bless God, remember, same verb, all we do is praise him in response to that. Now, it's a beautifully appropriate response to bless God for blessing us. But just because it's the same verb doesn't make it the same action. It's not even the same kind of action. There are lots of reasons for that, and we could draw them out by pondering the difference between the creator and the creature. But the deepest reason that we can never bless God the way God blesses us is that God is already blessed. God is blessed with perfect, plenary, personal blessedness. Now, you may have already noticed that sometimes I say blessed and sometimes I say blessed. And I don't know if you buy the blessed wall hanger hashtag at Hobby Lobby, which way you're supposed to pronounce that. But I've looked it up in the dictionary, and you can say either blessed or blessed. Both are acceptable. Uh, I say blessed when I feel fancy. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, So, the blessedness of God is a classic Christian doctrine, and it's one that we could all stand to hear a lot more about in our time. We could stand to hear a lot more about it, not just because it's an inherently cheerful doctrine or one that sparks praise, though it certainly is that, and we do need to spend some time with cheerful doctrines, gathering reasons to praise God. But it's also a doctrine that would be especially good for our era because it's so radically God-centered. It's a doctrine that takes us deep into the secret life of God and could restore for us the sense of God's reality, weightiness, or sheer realness that is always threatening to slip away from us in our daily life. The doctrine of blessedness equips us with big thoughts to think about God in three domains. First of all, God's relation to the world. Secondly, God's essential perfections. And third, God's experience of his own life. So consider these three domains that I mentioned as concentric circles. We can think our way in towards the inner circle from a starting point in the outer circle, which is in the outskirts of God's ways, or the relation of God to creation. Consider God's own blessedness with regard to God's relation to creation. To recognize that God is already blessed before we bless him is to realize something utterly fundamental about God's relation to the entire world of creatures. God is self-sufficient. If God had never created anything whatsoever, he would still be fully himself with no unmet needs waiting to be fulfilled by anything outside of his own divine life. You could think away our presence here today. You could think away our salvation. You could think away creation itself. If you perform that gigantic act of abstraction and think, what if there was nothing but God, you would have to say, God is not diminished by that. God is not sitting around going like, dang, I need to get some projects going. Right? The, the all-sufficiency, the self-sufficiency of God recognizes the full actualization of all that God is in himself, grounded in himself and satisfied in himself. So at a more abstract and metaphysical level, this is the same point made by the doctrine of God's aseity. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's a terrible word for English speakers, and I apologize for saying it in mixed company. It still sounds half Latin, right? The, the Latin roots are the best key to seeing the clear meaning. Aseity comes from 
ah without say, or um, ah say means from himself, rather, from himself, ah say, or of himself, with the implication being not grounded in anything prior. We could try to make a more properly English word out of this by cobbling together from selfitude, but that sounds even worse than aseity. But the meaning is at least clear. From selfitude, or to get to the double negative side of it, not from something elseitude. But in addition to being silly sounding words, those don't sound very smart, so like, say aseity. Um, these are hardly better words. To keep the old word aseity around and say that God is from himself, independent, self-sufficient, he has aseity. So blessedness has some obvious resemblances to aseity. But notice how abstract things got when I switched from talking about divine blessedness, which we'll read about in 1 Timothy 1.11, to aseity, which is a biblical concept, but phrased in a very abstract way. Blessedness also has some resemblances to the doctrine that God is pure act, or is fully actualized. Now this is, I think, even a more abstract doctrine, but it means something like God is not developing, not moving on from a state in which he has lots of potential to a state in which he's finally reached that potential. No, God has always been and always will be at the state of fully actualized, or he has his existence in pure act. I admit the air is getting pretty thin up here with this doctrine. So if we talk about blessedness instead of aseity or pure actuality, it's because with blessedness, we're emphasizing that God is not just independent and fully real, but that he rejoices in his own perfect being. Do you get the joy note in the word blessed? That's the key contribution of the doctrine of blessedness. It carries all the metaphysical heft and grandeur of the more abstract doctrines, but it adds to them the revealed notion of God's enjoyment or happiness in his own perfection. It's an extremely friendly doctrine. It brings the highest things down low where we can conceive of them more concretely. Um, it's relatable, as the kids say these days. Do kids say that out here? It's, or is, that a, is that a California word? It's really relatable. And as an aside, it also comes to us in directly biblical words. God is blessed. First Timothy says so. Of course, there's also a strong biblical case for aseity and pure act, but they require more philosophical reflection and abstraction to elaborate them. God's blessedness is right there on the page, waiting to be considered more deeply. And, and by the way, when I get to teach on blessedness, um, I often have people come up and say, I have never heard of that doctrine before. And so I feel like, oh, could I make money on this somehow? Like, am I running around coining new divine attributes? I, um, no, I, I really want to emphasize, it's right there in your Bible. You're carrying it around. You've probably sung it. You've, you've heard of it before. I'm just putting a spotlight on it and saying, have you closely considered how much the Bible is telling you when it tells you that God is blessed? Because there's a lot here. When God freely and graciously created, he didn't change from being unsatisfied, unblessed, and unglorified to suddenly being fulfilled and having a purpose. The benefit that follows from creation, the blessing that creation brings, is entirely a blessing from God to creatures. This is why I'm introducing us to blessedness by starting out here at the outskirts of the God-world relation. The blessing is all from God to the world. The traffic doesn't go the other way. Furthermore, God continues to be self-sufficient and fully realized within his own life, even once creation has come into being. Since God minus the world would be God, then God plus the world is also still God. 
The traffic between God's blessedness and creation goes in one direction, from God to us. I'm not contradicting Ephesians 1.3, which says, bless God who has blessed us. Bless, when we do it towards God, means to praise and thank in response to what God has done. Bless, when God does it to us, means this thing that only God, the source of all blessing, can do. Listen to how Edward Lee, the 17th century lay theologian, said it. Lee said, God is blessed essentially, primarily, originally, of himself such, and not by the help of any other thing. So the word blessedness opens up a vision of God as infinitely transcending all dependence and all incompleteness. Just speaking the word marks out the frontier of a vast doctrine. Now, when I introduced the doctrine of the of blessedness, I started with the way Ephesians 1.3 runs in two directions with the same word, blessed. But the Greek word used there, remember, is eulogatos, or some form of eulogia, whose roots mean speaking well of. The actual key vocabulary word for blessedness in the ancient world and in the Greek New Testament is not eulogatos, but, but makarios, M-A-K-A-R-I-O-S, makarios. It's the same word Jesus uses about people in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. And the Beatitudes are sometimes called makarisms, right? They're, they're blessings. Their um, blessedness is put onto people. But Paul applies this word for blessed directly to God in our text that we started with, 1 Timothy 1.11, and also in 1 Timothy 6.15. The two Greek words go together, eulogia and makarios. They go together to mark out and round out the doctrine of divine blessedness. Blessing God, eulogatos, for how he has blessed us, lifts up our minds to recognize his own state of always having been blessed, makarios. In 1 Timothy 1.11, Paul says his message is the glorious gospel of the blessed God. William Burkett, 17th century Bible commentator, noted that Paul uses the word here, quote, to signify thereby to us God's transcendent mercy and excelling goodness in that being infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself and his divine perfections, and incapable of any profit from or advantage by his creatures, God was yet pleased to give us his Son, his gospel, his Holy Spirit, to qualify us for and bring us to the enjoyment of himself. Now, I hope you hear how many synonyms Burkett has piled up here to unpack what it means to call God the blessed God. The cascade of synonyms and near synonyms makes it apparent that Burkett is drawing a lot of meaning out of this single word, as if Paul had just given a little hint to the expositor that something here ought to be pursued in greater depth. The word blessed is indeed, in the handful of times it occurs in the New Testament, a signal to dig deeper and say something about the nature of God behind the good news that is being announced. The gospel is the gospel of the blessed God, and that's why it's glorious. For Paul to call God blessed in the context of the gospel is to point out the sheer gratuity or graciousness of his self-giving. Moved by neither need nor greed, lacking nothing, unimprovably happy, God gives graciously from his own abundance. It's a big doctrine. It's hard to get your mind around. But God is so perfectly complete and fulfilled that he is exalted above all neediness and greediness. He works towards us in grace and love because in the ultimate sense, there is nothing in it for him. He doesn't need to make use of us to increase or improve his blessedness. He doesn't increase in glory points for being glorified by us since it is all already fully actual within the divine life without reference to us. 
God alone has unborrowed blessedness. He's the only source. Creatures borrow blessedness and life from the largesse of God. So um, the point of life, and certainly of the Christian life, is to get in on blessedness. But to get it, we've got to go and take it from the one source where it is. God alone has unborrowed blessedness. Now you might notice the tension in this doctrine, as it seems to start out by sternly warning us about God's absolute self-sufficiency, as if carefully distancing God from any entanglements. But then as the doctrine unfolds in our understanding, it shows itself to be the source of God's deepest involvement with creatures. We hear whispers of this beautiful doctrine of the blessed God in old hymns, like God from who, praise God from whom all blessings flow, or fount of every blessing. The theological tension here between the high doctrine of God's self-sufficiency and the close, intimate doctrine of God uh, giving to us is a fruitful tension. Unless God is blessed without us, we could never be blessed in him. That is, what may seem like an imposing doctrine of an austere and faraway God is, in fact, the foundation of the glorious gospel of that God in his blessedness. As we heard in the, in the previous message, uh, in dealing with God's relation to creation like this, we're really only dealing with the fringes of his ways, just the outskirts of his ways. The next step, and we've already done a lot, right? Like if, if we could get clear on the way the blessedness of God anchors God's independence and grace towards the world, it would transform every doctrine we come to. But we can go into the next concentric circle in. So in from the God-world relation to the perfections of God. In addition to helping us think rightly about the relation to the world, blessedness helps us think, think about those things we call the divine attributes, something we should have a conference on, right? Uh, blessedness is a divine attribute or perfection, but it has a special status among the perfections. At least one theologian, Augustus Hopkins Strong, reckoned it to be not so much a divine attribute in itself as a description of what it means for God to have all the divine attributes. Right? What he means is um, it's not that you make a list of perfections of God and then just add blessedness to it. You have to go back and say, God has all these previous perfections blessedly. He is happy to have all of them. Blessedness focuses our attention almost adverbially on the way God possesses the perfections that he possesses. Well, whatever we decide about how to categorize divine blessedness, the point is that it's a doctrine that sums up all the other divine attributes. That is, if you take all that it means to be God, his goodness and mercy and truth and faithfulness and beauty and steadfastness and patience and wisdom, and you consider them all simultaneously as God's own inmost possession in which he delights, then you get the doctrine of blessedness. Remember, it's not as though we are assembling God by adding together perfections, but our thoughts do need to run through the course of his perfections and accumulate them mentally in front of our mind's eye in their primal unity. When we do that, which is of course no small task, we can consider them as they shine outwardly and as they resonate inwardly, right? So um, take a moment, run through all the divine perfections really quickly. Now consider how they shine outwardly and how they resonate inwardly. When we consider them as shining forth from God, we call it glory. Glory, a very special divine perfection. But when we consider them as being perfectly enjoyed by God in absolute divine self-possession, we call it blessedness. 
Now, I want to do a little aside here, um, since I'm speaking early in the conference, about how to think about these divine perfections. Uh, they are all uh, uh, simply unified in their transcendent wholeness in God, but we do need to give time to each one of them as we think through them. What are we doing when we do that? The sequence of divine attributes traditionally treated in systematic theology um, follows a certain order. Um, in a comprehensive Christian doctrine, authors usually lay out their expositions of God's perfection in a sequence or a structure. And it's by no means absolutely mandatory, so if you've got a couple systematic theologies on your shelf, they're going to disagree with each other about the order that these are supposed to go in. But there's a certain logic to it. By the way, the whole doctrine of divine attributes, it's not a free play zone where you can just do whatever you want. But because the divine attributes are numberless, you never know when you're done. And you're never sure where to start. And so there is a kind of glorious freedom to working in the doctrine of divine attributes. Again, I don't mean like everyone just do whatever they want with them and you're free to leave things out. It's pretty biblically clear that you've got to say certain things about God to be rightly talking about God. Um, but because if you're like a type A personality who really likes your doctrines totally tied down, because you can't do that in doctrine, in this doctrine, right? You kind of have to back up and say like, well, I did nine of them. That'll, that'll do, right? Like, I, didn't, I didn't leave out any major ones. Though if Sanders comes, he's going to accuse me of leaving out blessedness and like try to try to get points for that or something. Um, but the thing is, like, no one can blow a whistle and tell you that you haven't got them all because nobody's got them all. The perfections most foundational. Oh, I'm sorry. The logic that you usually get in a systematic theology for handling the divine perfections tends to start with the perfections that are the most fundamental to our understanding of God's existence or of what God is or maybe even of who God is. The perfections most foundational for our apprehension of God come first. So even if these perfections of God are sometimes very abstractly stated, it works best to lay them down first and to build the structure of understanding onto them. God's spirituality and simplicity, God's immutability, unity, infinity, greatness. We could go on as a complete li uh, we could go on at length enumerating these foundational perspectives. Um, the uh, sorry, I'm going to skip a section here because we just heard a lot about infinity. Um, good. The numberless divine perfections sometimes seem to draw us on theologically toward a vanishing horizon as we pursue them. And I'm not complaining about that. That's a, that's a feature of this doctrine, not a bug, as the software programmers would say. Um, I'm not describing a problem. Or if it's a problem, it's a good, wonderful, fruitful problem to always be chasing after an adequate account of the divine perfections. But then once that foundation is laid, you build on it by considering other divine perfections. And then as the provisional end comes into view, um, a final set of divine perfections comes around, a set of perfections which sort of presuppose that you've already considered a bunch of other perfections in a prior move. And that now you're taking a retrospective view back across all of them over the whole set and making kind of a summative statement about God by drawing together the perfections from the far side of having already meditated on each of them in sequence. These final capstone or summative perfections have a specially wonderful character, and chief among them is blessedness. Let me illustrate this from the great Protestant theologian Petrus von Maastricht, his 17th century system of theology, which apparently we're all like here to advertise because people should buy that. Um, uh, it's just now appearing in English for the first time. The first three volumes are out. Um, I know you'll pardon my nerdiness if I say, wow, what a time to be alive. 
by when Petrus von Maastricht is coming into English. You couldn't read this stuff back when we were in seminary. You, you had to like learn Latin and wish you could read it. Um, kids these days have just got all the good stuff in English and I hope they appreciate it. We had to like go to seminary uphill both ways in the snow. It was so difficult. No von Maastricht, but like it'll be better for future generations because Petrus von Maastricht is in print. But Master has a wonderful, detailed, and precise treatment of the divine attributes. The earlier ones, like spirituality and infinity, which I called foundational, he refers to as primitive. And the later ones, which I called summative, he refers to as the attributes that are, so to speak, derivative from the others. That is, they're derivative in the sense that you don't start with them, but first you consider the others, and then you derive your understanding of these later attributes from that consideration or in a slightly better turn of phrase, because derivative doesn't sound like high praise, he calls them doctrines that coalesce from consideration of all the others. So they are coalescing doctrines, derivative in that sense. But Master lists three, perfection, glory, and blessedness. Those are the three coalescing doctrines to be treated at the end of a system. And once he's discussed each of these, he brings his massive doctrine of the one God to a conclusion and then turns to discuss the persons of the Trinity. It's just, I don't know if any human-authored systematic theology can be perfect, but um, it's, it's pretty great. Um, so, blessedness and glory belong together at the end of an exemplary theological system. But of course, there's an underlying reason why theology books have that structure. It's because this sequence of perfections traces the actual structure of our knowledge of God. That's what these theological statements are all tracking with, an order inherent in the things we know about God. And the divine perfections, in some way, sort themselves into that sequence as we consider them well. We become aware of glory really early on in our spiritual awareness of God. It may, in some ways, be one of the first things you become aware of about God. But as a thing that we can focus our minds on and contemplate, glory gravitates toward the conclusion as a great comprehensive view that takes in everything else that is true about God as it shines or radiates outward. Now, since I've talked about the divine attributes in this way, I do want to triple underline one thing about them. I am not, I am describing the way divine perfections are laid out in our minds, in our informed, biblical, Christian understanding of God. What I mean is, if I were to produce for you a chart of how these all fit together, and I could, they're sequenced and they're totally chartable if you're a visual thinker. Um, if I did that, I would not have produced for you a diagram of God. That's, that's not what that would be. Um, I would have produced a diagram of the well-ordered knowledge of God, and it's important to acknowledge the difference between the two. Of course, theology is about God, and I know God partly by thinking the theological thoughts. But the distinction really matters. Through good theology, well-ordered in response to God's revelation, we apprehend God, but we do not comprehend God which would be what we would have done if I had drawn an accurate diagram of God. We do not comprehend the God we apprehend. Indeed, one of the characteristics of God is divine incomprehensibility. We know the incomprehensible one, and we know that he is incomprehensible. I just wanted to triple underline this to make sure you don't get the impression that we are adding elements together so that they total up to a doctrine of God. The divine perfections are not a list of ingredients that we can use in a divine recipe that we can mix in a bowl and whip up a batch of divinity. That's not how it works. The one perfectly simple God that we are contemplating isn't like that. In fact, there's an important sense in which our ability or even our need to list these different perfections distinctly and meditate on them individually 
is imposed on us by the fact that we're finite creatures pondering the infinite creator. So here's an illustration. When you're standing in a landscape, uh, you can direct your attention to the horizon, uh, but you can't direct your attention at the same time to that horizon over there, even though it's the same horizon. You can't take it all in at a single glance. You only see the slice of it that's in front of you. Now, it's plenty, of course. It's the whole horizon that you can see. It fills your field of vision and stretches away to both sides. But you're not seeing all of it. To take in the full scope of the horizon that would surround you, uh, you have to turn and turn and turn again. Notice, you're only looking at one big thing, but because of its scale and your finite location within its vast surrounding reality, you only apprehend it by turning and turning and turning, as we do with our attention in the attributes of God. East is east and west is west, really, but the horizon is one. Our knowledge of God is something like that. He has revealed something so vast and comprehensive that we only approach its inherent simplicity and unity by turning our attention through a series of discrete meditations. And that's what gives a special character to these summative or coalescing doctrines, they, um, especially blessedness and glory. If we turn a complete circle and saw the whole horizon and then concluded with that final glimpse of how the whole panorama goes together, we'd be doing something like what we're doing now, considering the divine blessedness. So to put it briefly, we can think of the word blessed as the answer to the question, big question, what is it like to be God? Now, it's the kind of question you wouldn't think we would be able to answer, right? You ever hear those questions in theology? Think like, I wonder what it felt like to be the second person of the Trinity incarnate at age three. Well, cool question, but it's not reasonable to expect you're ever going to have a satisfying answer to that question. So just like leave it there with a question mark at the end and back away slowly. Uh, And I will admit, the question, what is it like to be God, doesn't seem like the thing, the kind of thing I would be able to know or be able to tell you, right? The secret things belong to God, the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Um, And you've got to make that distinction when you think maybe you've stumbled across a zone in theology where you think, like, possibly one of the secret things that belong to the Lord. But the doctrine of blessedness really seems to indicate to us God's inward apprehension of his own being. To the extent that creatures can give any meaningful answer to the question, what's it like to be God, even on the basis of God's self-revelation, we can answer that to be God is to be happy. Happy. And I'm I'm, I'm using the H word. I'm, I'm dumbing it down from blessedness, which sounds fancy and is fancy, to happy, which maximally sort of has analogical contact with our human experience uh, to to show how close to us this answer gets. Certainly in English, but probably in all creaturely language, we crash into the problem that a word like happy just can't carry the weight we need it to. God possesses whatever we would call that absolutely solid and real thing that happiness is just a shadow of. Um, He has it par excellence. It's good news that God has blessedness and that God is blessed. God is sufficient. God is all-sufficient. Never waiting on something outside of the divine life to make the divine life complete. God is always enjoying all the perfections of being himself and knowing that he has all those perfections and loving that he has all those perfections. That's the coalescing doctrine of divine blessedness. We'll have to come back to that in a minute, but I want to move to the very inmost circle just to show that we're not just talking about the relation of God to creation, or even just 
the way that God possesses all the divine perfections, but something about the life of God in itself as the Holy Trinity. The perfect God who creates without need or greed, the outer circle, the one God in the plenitude of his attributes, inner circle, is the triune God whose eternal life is characterized by ineffable joy and mutual glorification among the persons of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the inmost circle. Divine blessedness and triunity have a special relation to each other. In previous generations, theologians who took the time to write very large treatments of doctrine would usually say everything they could about God's nature first and then turn to the doctrine of the Trinity to consider each of the three persons who possessed this divine nature that they had just described. Often they would reserve the doctrine of blessedness to be the very last thing they said about the one God before turning on the very next page to the doctrine of the Trinity having carefully and unsuccessfully tried to hold their tongue and not get completely Trinitarian in everything they say about all the attributes of the divine essence. They would say, finally, we've said blessedness, we've achieved the doctrine, the best we're going to, we can now open the door and talk about the Trinity, which we've been implicitly presupposing the whole time. So in, um, we see it strikingly in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologia. It goes exactly in that order. Blessedness is the final question in the treatise on the one God. Turn the page, doctrine of the triune God. Same thing in Amandus Polanus and in Petrus van Maastricht, the Protestant theologians. So in jumbo theology books, blessedness is the hinge attribute that lets you turn the corner from talking about the one divine essence to talking about the three divine persons. I think you can tell that something deeper is at stake here than just how we organize the table of contents in big theology books. I mean, that excites me, but uh, it, would, it would need to sort of go a little deeper than that for normal human life. There is something Trinitarian about blessedness. Why does the doctrine of blessedness gravitate toward the doctrine of the Trinity like this? Partly it's because of the coalescing or summative nature of blessedness, the way it bundles all the divine attributes uh, of God having them, knowing he has them, and rejoicing in having them. It gathers them all up into one self-reflexive moment and then completes the doctrine of the one God giving the doctrine of the one God a kind of inward intensification that is just ready to burst forth in the fully explicit doctrine of the Trinity. A deeper reason is that once we cross the line into trying to speak about the fullness and perfection of God's joy, we find ourselves reverently following the lines of revelation into the innermost chamber of God's identity. And when you go into the innermost chamber of God's eternal identity, the eternal reality of God is his life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now the blessedness and Trinity connection also opens out onto a view of the events of the gospel, where God's blessedness is enacted among us. Right? Remember Paul is teaching the uh, gospel of the glory of the blessed God. In the gospel, God's blessedness is enacted among us creatures, and it is enacted conspicuously and interpersonally. What I mean by that is, and it's finally time for gospel stories, think of the way the Father not only loves the Son, but rejoices in him. You know, it's, it's an important distinction. Not just love, but rejoicing in. Um, I'm tempted to say, like, he doesn't just love him, he likes him. You know, but but it's, it's a lot deeper than that, right? It's a lot deeper than liking. Um, the biblical language is um, that the, the Father is pleased in the Son. If we were talking about the doctrine of the love of God, we'd want to say a lot more here about how the Father loves the Son and vice versa. But we're talking about divine blessedness. 
So we want to focus not so much on love as such, but on the delight of it, the mutual delight that father and son take in each other. So the voice of the father says of Jesus at the Jordan River, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's not only Trinitarian love here, but Trinitarian rejoicing in, uh, well-pleasedness in each other, eudokia, good pleasure, a wonderful New Testament word that indicates God being motivated by joy. That's the father speaking to the son, but consider the other direction, uh, the son speaking to the father. In Luke 10, 21, we read, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Luke 10, 21, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit as he praised his father and said to his father, yes, father, for this was your good pleasure, Eudokia. The son rejoicing in the Holy Spirit at the father's good pleasure in the mission of the son. In the deep things of God, I once called the realm of the eternal blessed triune God, the happy land of the Trinity. In the history of salvation, we see the son and spirit as emissaries from that happy land, bringing its joy and good pleasure to dwell among us. The blessedness of God is conspicuously visible in the fellowship of the three persons in heaven from eternity and on earth for us and our salvation. So to sum up on blessedness as we turn to some practical concerns, one possible reason we don't often hear about divine blessedness these days may be that it's such a vast and comprehensive doctrine that it's just hard to talk about. Like, I hope I've persuaded you that there's a lot in it. Because like step one is rehearse all the other perfections of God's essence to your satisfaction in a provisional way and then move on. Because of the coalescing nature of the doctrine, um, this is one that in order to think properly about with the right sort of heft and weight, you have to draw in a full doctrine of God to do so. God's blessedness has one foot in that highly exalted big God theology um, that some people have recently been calling classical theism. By the way, I don't know if you get, the, do you get this phrase like, then I discovered big God theology and everything changed. I, I like using technical words and being precise and using traditioned theological categories. But I also love when someone just has a spiritual moment of insight and tries to put together any words for it. Like, did you know God is big? Like, I just, uh, this big God theology is really rocking my world. I don't know how to talk about it. Like, well, so far you're doing well. Right? Like, there are, there, are, there are books about this, but yes, something has, has broken through, and you were previously saying lots of right things about God, but somehow in your mind it was small God theology, and blessedness can be one of the big invitations to big God theology. The doctrine keeps company with great themes like aseity, simplicity, and the attributes that start with the prefix omni, right? Like this is, these are exalted doctrines. Blessedness is a high and exalted doctrine. But the doctrine's other foot is very near to us and makes close contact with human happiness. We must maintain constant awareness that we're speaking analogically about the ineffable God, and we always need to remain reverent in what we say. But the fact is, for all that reverence, and for all the acknowledgement that we're speaking analogically and that our words are not good enough to do justice to God, the fact is that God is happy. And the sovereign joy of the indestructibly blessed God is good news. It's good news for sinners. Good news, sinner. God is blessed. One of the things this means is you can't steal his joy no matter how hard you try. Puritan Stephen Charnock had a special definition of sin. 
he defines sin as an attempted robbery of God's blessedness. It's it's not robbery, it's attempted robbery. Like, you tried to steal my joy. Um, Charnock says, sin in its own nature endeavors to render God the most miserable being in the world. Sin endeavors to subject the blessed God to the evil of every person in the world. You might consider it God in the hands of angry sinners. We would make God permanently unhappy if we could. Have you heard these life coaches who say, don't let anybody steal your joy? So I feel really like I'm in South Carolina now and I have to check, like, do we just say that in California or is that spread out here? You're not going to steal my joy. Um, It's as if God says, uh, good try, but not today, sinners. You're not going to steal my joy. Um, God's joy is stronger. Uh, It is invincible, and it is coming to banish sadness and misery. To tell the story of how the happy God overcomes our despair would, of course, require us to rehearse creation, fall, the election of Israel, life and death of the incarnate Son, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and all the rest. It would be to do the whole story of the good news of salvation, retuned to the key of blessedness or the joy of God. It would be a systematic theology of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Prominent in a complete systematic theology of divine blessedness would be two other key moments that finish the story. One is the exaltation of the risen Christ to the right hand of God. So if you want to kind of have a mental picture, a moment from the history of salvation that is transparent to divine blessedness, it's the enthronement, the ascension, exaltation, enthronement of the risen Christ. The enthronement of the Son after his accomplishment of redemption is the full manifestation of the blessedness of the triune God. It shines forth from there in the Father's love of the Son seated at his right hand, saying to the Father, With you is fullness of joys. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 1611. And finally, with blessedness in mind, we need to look at future eschatology in which the beatific vision would loom large. Can you hear the word beatus in beatific, the the making blessed, the, the, the vision that makes blessed, the vision or seeing of God which transfers us into the realm of divine blessedness. That is the ultimate communication of God's own blessedness to those whom he blesses. He blesses the blessed with the blessedness he is. Therefore, blessed be the God who has blessed us. I know that we're reaching the, the point of possible semantic overload here where I've said the same word that starts with a B too many times and it means like, wait, is that, is that really that word? It, but you can do that with anything, right? Like just say spoon 400 times out loud and you'll have this existential moment of like, what is spoon? <laughs> <laughs> like, what, who am I? What, what is this? What are words? Um, there's just semantic overload, but, but I just have to use the word a lot. I'm trying to use as many synonyms as possible, but I really want you to go away from this and every time you see the word blessedness from now on go like that one time that guy went on and on about it for so long (laughs) I remember that Um, 1st Timothy 1.11 I think is the only passage in scripture that I've found that brings together the words glory and blessed in the same phrase the greatness of God is that God is uh, all that he is and shining outwardly he is glorious outwardly but uh but reflected inwardly, God is blessed inwardly. The idea or the concept or the background sense of who and what God is as the glorious and blessed one is everywhere in the Bible, though, even though this is the only verse I know that has those two words side by side and and especially that links them to the gospel. 
Everywhere God is mentioned, that is to say, every time you see the word God in the Bible, it's referring to the glorious and blessed one I'm talking about. This is what it means for Paul to say that sound doctrine is in accord with the, the uh, gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Right? This is what God means. All that God is, glorious and blessed. Blessedness, then, as an answer to the question, what is God like, is happiness, the ultimate joy. God is sufficient. Um, and this is something that applies to the full range of human life, to know that God is blessed in himself as we live in moments that are happy and moments that are unhappy, as we live in times of delight and fulfillment and as we live in times of trial and uh, suffering. Um, a brief story here about a British Baptist missionary to Jamaica named William Nibb, K-N-I-B-B, 19th century uh, British Baptist missionary to Jamaica. He was an emancipationist in the Jamaican setting. He preached on 1 Timothy 1.11, our passage, as his final sermon, the last one he gave before his sudden death. He was visiting another pastor's church, and though the other pastor was supposed to preach the evening service, he felt weak from a recent bout of the flu, so Nib preached himself, even though he was just there to visit. It was his last sermon. Um, it, I think pastors know there's three things you have to always be ready for, right? You have to be ready to pray, preach, or die at any moment. So... Um, Nib was ready to preach, and he preached on this passage, uh, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, or as he liked to say, the glorious gospel of the happy God. He went ahead and made that, that risk of using the more common word. Now, Nib was uh, fighting for the freedom of Jamaican slaves in the 1840s, and he paid the price for it. He was often in danger. He was always in arguments because the tide had not yet turned against slavery. One of the biggest arguments he got into was when slavers made the claim that their slaves were better off in slavery because, after all, they were happy. Now, Nib knew better. He knew what happy meant. He knew where to get the definition of happy, and he knew it didn't mean enslavement, that beatings and bondage that he documented in his writing, the breaking up of families, lives cut short, degradation. He knew that slavers were just using the word happy to cover injustice and keep things as they are. But Nib knew that real happiness is the blessedness of God. Real happiness, the gospel of freedom and salvation and liberation and transformation, is when humans in all their need come under the care of the happy God who has no needs whatsoever. When some of Nib's collaborators were imprisoned for their emancipationist work, he went by their prison to visit them and heard them from a distance singing a hymn to God that had these words, O thou from whom all goodness flows, I lift my heart to thee. In all my sorrows, conflicts, woes, dear Lord, remember me. It's one of those hymns that we sing, uh, I don't know that actual hymn, but we, we sing all these hymns that are like, God will meet me in my sadness, and we sing them like, no matter what Sunday it happens to be. But then there's a time when you sing them and you think, wow, it's as if this hymn was written for this moment. O thou from whom all goodness flows, and all my sorrows, conflicts, woes, dear Lord, remember me. These miserable people in their need could cry out to the blessed God, from whom all goodness and blessedness flows. This is the result of the gospel of the happy God. Now, blessedness is easier to say and see and focus on if we bring in the biblical idea of the Trinity, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are um, complete. They are not incomplete. They are not lonely. They are not needy. The Trinity is not sitting around heaven wishing they had a fourth so they could at least play bridge. The triune God doesn't wish the pitter-patter of little feet would liven up the place and add some excitement to the drafty old mansions of an empty heaven. No, God in three persons, the blessed Trinity, is fully and completely happy and fulfilled without us. 
When God brings us into fellowship, it's for our salvation, not his enrichment. It's good news for us, not God. It's good news about God, for our benefit and for his glory. Out of his own infinite, bottomless blessedness, God blesses us. Now, I mentioned that one reason people don't talk a lot about the blessedness of God is it's just a large doctrine that takes some time to sort of meditate your way into. But another reason is, sometimes it seems that we're so obsessed with the reality of suffering in the modern world and in our own lives that we can get stingy about blessedness. You know what I mean? Stingy about blessedness in the sense that we don't even want God to have it. But he has it, and his blessedness is deeper than any imaginable grief. It's the secret of God's own happiness and the source of salvation from the pain and sorrow introduced among creatures by sin. The poet William Blake said of God, he gives to us his joy that our griefs he may destroy. We are sometimes tempted as sinners to say, if I can't be happy, nobody's allowed to be happy, including including God, as Charnock would say. But in fact, the good news is that God is happy And because God is happy, the omnipotent happiness of God is coming to the rescue. The blessedness of God is the foundation of our salvation and the fountain of all blessings. Why is the blessedness of God the gospel? Because if God's not happy, then nobody gets to be happy. There are a couple of famous sayings you could consider about happiness. They're not from the Bible. One is from ancient Greece. Sophocles said, call no one happy until he's dead. Sophocles wrote great plays, and what he meant was, if the opening act of the play sets somebody up with everything going great in their life, you know what's about to happen, right? If everyone comes on in act one and says, you are so blessed, must be great to be you, aren't you happy? No, no. Then act two, terrible things happen. Now, if it's a comedy, then in act three, everything's restored, everything's great, and maybe if you would end the person's life or the play right there, then you'd be allowed to say he's happy. But it's hard for us to sort out good and bad in the course of history because we don't know often where we're coming from or where we're going, like where the story starts or especially where the story ends. That's why Sophocles' bit of wisdom, don't call anyone happy till they're dead. Like you can't be sure they're happy till you see how the story turns out. Well, in the case of God, we are not waiting to see how the story turns out. God knows where he's coming from himself and where he's going himself, his own blessedness. Or maybe it's better to say he's not coming from anywhere or going anywhere. He simply is. Or maybe it's better to say um, the, the Son and the Spirit are coming from the Father and returning to the Father. The point is that all of us are developing, becoming ourselves. We're on our way to who we are. I wasn't me before I met my wife or had my kids. I was a, a different me. I can barely understand that person anymore when I think back on him. I have a story, a biography. I'm changed by the things that happened to me. But you... You could write a novel about my coming of age. It wouldn't be a very exciting novel. It'd be a lot about book reading and stuff. But you could do that, how I came to be who I am. You cannot write a novel about God's coming of age. You cannot write a story about how God started happy, had some problems, solved them, and then was happy again. That's not how it works. Now, the second saying about happiness or blessedness is um, actually from the Bible. It's Acts 20, 28. Uh, The saying is, it is more blessed to give than receive. It's a really nice key to the idea of blessedness. After all, to say it briefly, who's more blessed, the giver or the receiver? So who's most blessed? Well, the most giver, right? 
<laughs> if it's more blessed to give than receive, then the one who gives the most is the most blessed, and we know who gives the most, the one who gives not out of need or out of greed, but out of goodness. Why do all blessings flow from God? Because he is all blessing. You have your blessedness outside you, in God. God has his blessedness inside of him, in himself. The blessedness of God is good news for the sufferer. God exceeds pain. It is good news for the cursed. God is blessing. It's good news for the blessed. Blessings are not an end in themselves, but they point us to somewhere greater, someone greater. Blessed is the one, the Bible says, who walks not in the way of the wicked, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Uh, there's a series of blessing statements throughout the Old Testament that Jesus picks up and develops in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the one who calls on the Lord. Blessed basically, here's the master rule for it, is whoever aligns with the blessedness of God. A final word about the way we should live in the light of God's blessedness. I hope that at least once or twice in my account of divine blessedness, it seemed to you that this is a very exalted doctrine that's not about you. In fact, I hope there were moments in which you glimpsed just how high above us this confession of God's blessedness is. I wouldn't mind if it flashed across your mind that you were somehow irrelevant to the divine blessedness, or even that the divine blessedness threatens to float away um, and be just fine all by itself without ever looking at you. That's not quite true, but that little moment of insight you get when you ponder the blessedness of the blessed trinity above all worlds is a glimpse of reality. And in our darkest hours, and in its own way, that glimpse is as necessary to us as an understanding that God is for us. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings books where Frodo and Samwise seem beyond all hope and help, and Samwise is keeping watch out of sheer anxiety and ineffective fretfulness. It's, he's not going to do anything. If a big spider comes along, he can't stop it. He's just like staying awake worrying. Everything's bad. But then he looks up, and here's how Tolkien describes it. Far above in the west, the night sky was still dim. There, peeping among the cloud rack above the dark tor, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope. For then he was thinking of himself. Now for a moment, his own fate and even his master ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself by Frodo's side, and putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. The good news of a God who loves us includes the good news that there is light and high beauty forever beyond the reach of the small and passing shadow which dominates our lives and looms so large on our horizon. Just knowing that there's a vast happiness somewhere can change everything. In our darkest hour when we can't imagine ourselves ever being happy, it can actually really cheer us up to think, someone somewhere is happy. Everything's not this bad. Someone's living a good life. And to add to that the biblical truth that that someone is God Almighty. Um, that, that can be a glimpse of truth that can lift us out of our darkest moments. It's the beginning of the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Will you pray with me? Father, we bless your name. 
We thank and praise you for all you've done for us and for all that you are. We are glad that you are the happy God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Thank you, Father, that you delight in your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're at the right hand of the Father with blessings forevermore. Spirit of the blessed God, 